0: Ladies and gentlemen, it's 1983, and James Bond comes up against his biggest enemy yet. Is it the titular character Octopussy? Is it Kamal Khan, the ex-Afghani prince? Or is it the rogue USSR General Orlov? No, it is Kevin McClory with his film Never Say Never Again, a remake of Thunderball. That's right, this is the year of two Bonds from different production studios. So, how does Eon answer the challenge? By getting Roger Moore back to remake an old Ian Fleming short story and somehow make a movie. That sounds like enough of an intro. Let's welcome my good friend to this episode of Raven Bond, Stuart Late.
1: Hello, Natalie. Hello, everyone. Yes, this is the... Uh the, the Bond, where they wanted to compete with the original Bond Sean Connery coming back by putting their current Bond in a clown suit. Oh,
0: <laughs>
1: uh, look. It probably I... seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs>
0: Actually, I'm not sure that Broccoli thought it was. Uh, <laughs> so, why is I... it in the movie?
1: We'll get, we'll get into it.
0: We'll get into it. But we need to introduce our very special guest. I'm so excited, Stu. This is our first international guest on Raven Bond. Raven Uh, Bond has
1: officially gone international.
0: We've gone global. We're we're global exports. I am so excited to introduce to you a Bond expert, a Doctor Who expert, he is a champion improviser, actor, playwright, a regular hit at the Edinburgh Fringe. He is a businessman, podcast host and editor. His own podcast is called Best Pick Podcast, where he and two friends review every movie that's ever won the Best Picture Oscar. So he is more than qualified to take us to task about this movie. Please welcome Tom Hey, Hello there. Tom, Thank you so much
2: you are... for having me.
0: Oh, we're so excited. You are in London. Quick update. How is it over there with COVID and everything?
2: Uh, Well, Britons love nothing more than going to the pub. So when the first... Green shoots of recovery started showing our beloved Prime Minister Boris Johnson insisted that everybody should go to the pub. That's now (laughs) mandatory. You can actually be sent to prison for not going to the pub. Even if you didn't do it Uh, before. Exactly. Yeah. So it remains to be seen what effect that will have on the virus. I think maybe his plan is to try and get the virus drunk. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and then maybe it will be less infectious but we don't know you never know that might work tom no <laughs> one's tried it yet it's, it's let's try everything let's let's throw everything we've got at this thing
0: take it out the back of the pub and just punch it up a bit after <laughs> yes. it's had a few drinks yes boris johnson he's he's really quite a character isn't he
2: he is yes we do love a character uh, of that uh <laughs> there's no doubt
0: it is so strange though because to me like the whole i mean yes britons love a character but you don't make him prime minister normally you just generally have fairly serious types as prime ministers no nonsense not a lot of laughter
1: well natalie listen given our own prime minister i don't think we can really be throwing stones i'm
0: not no i'm not (laughs) but it's just that boris seems to just muss up his hair a bit and everyone goes "Oh, he's cheeky i don't get it from a distance it's very
2: strange I don't get it from right here, so don't worry about it. It's, it may not be gettable. I don't know.
0: Well, we talked last week about For Your Eyes Only ending with a sequence of Margaret Thatcher and Dennis Thatcher in their kitchen saying, well done, Bond. Do you think, Tom, that we could see in No Time to Die, the next Daniel Craig Bond, <laughs> a coda where he just turns up to, you know, say hello to Boris? And uh, do you think that's that's within the scope of possibility?
2: I hope not.
1: <laughs> <laughs> just to alpha a counterpoint, now that's all I want to see. I want to see the whole movie. <laughs> just Daniel Craig Bond just glowering at Boris Johnson for for <laughs> two hours and ten minutes.
2: Well, well they we did. In 2012 Olympics, we had the Queen with yes, Daniel Craig. That's true, so yes. That is correct. It's, it's, it's all to play for.
0: All right. Well, we are talking about Octopussy, which is the 13th film at this point in the official Eon franchise. And as I mentioned in my intro, this is the year of the rival Bond film, which is, of course, Sean Connery reprising the role in a remake of Thunderball called Never Say Never Again. So there was a lot of, I think, a bit of angst in the studio. And, Tom, uh, I know you're a big Bond fan. If you have insights, please jump in. But as I understand it from what I've been reading, the whole reason they got Roger Moore back again (laughs) is because they thought he was the only person who could actually compete with Sean Connery that if they got a new bond they would totally lose out to a return with Sean Connery and that's yeah, why they just
2: Yeah, only they're they're already starting to play him as an older man. You guys talked on the podcast about him having to turn down BB Doll's advances yes. because that <laughs> seemed uh, a bit inappropriate. Uh, But it's interesting for the next two films, the issue that he's over the hill is just never addressed. Yes. Yes, yes. It's just denial. And you're right. they, They couldn't afford to change bonds when Sean Connery was bringing out his competing film. But they also couldn't afford to replace more after this one because then it would look like Connery had won. So he had to come back and do A View to a Kill in order to prove that (laughs) Eon's strategy was just, we're going to hold the line, Roger Moore's our guy. And we're not here to talk about A View to a Kill, but I'll just offer you this nugget because it's not a film that's very well liked and it's not a film that I particularly like. But there was a marvellous Radio 4 show with Mark Gatiss and Matthew Sweets talking about all the bonds. And I think it was Gatiss who said, A View to a Kill is actually a very fine film if you can pretend that what you're watching is the, the half recollections of a bewildered old man who <laughs> believes that he was once a member of the British Secret Service.
1: <laughs> as, as if it's a story he's telling his carer.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. We're not he's, quite at that stage yet, but he does look very, very <laughs> over the hill. In a to a kill.
0: Isn't that interesting? I and mean, We talked last week about how he'd been looking to retire after Moonraker, but said he'd come back and now he's had to come back again. Now he's kind of forced to go back for a view to a kill. <laughs> And I'm surprised he's not still doing them, to be honest, like just from the grave, dig him up. Uh, sorry, that's very disrespectful to Sir Roger Moore. Uh, don't mean that. But uh, I did want to say that on the Wikipedia entry for Octopussy, because that is where I do the bulk of my research because I'm a professional, but there's actually a screen test with Vijay Amracharj, who played Vijay, his contact in the film. And the guy playing Bond in the screen test is James Brolin. Oh, my God. James Brolin, Barbara Streisand's husband now. Was he being
1: – yeah, what was he being considered?
0: He's in a costume in a screen test – for oh the film, god. and supposedly according to the Wikipedia page, like he was re- preparing to leave to go move to well London, India to go do all this filming for Octopus. Was he going to
1: put on a, a, a British accent, or well, we certainly hope so? <laughs> or were we just going to get the American Bond? Yeah, well, I'm glad we didn't. That's so
2: incredible! Oh my it's god, hard that's impossible um... because. As you said in the last podcast, Roger Moore's contract had expired and he refused to sign another multi-picture deal. So he and Broccoli would play this game of movie poker and (laughs) Moore would say, well, maybe I don't think I'm going to do another one. And Broccoli would say, well, maybe we don't need you. And so (laughs) Broccoli may have been doing screen tests just in order to drive Roger Moore's price down.
0: <laughs> oh, wow.
2: That sounds plausible as well. That, that, I, I, <laughs> after everything I've heard about the broccolis.
0: Yeah. Well, this we talked, I think, last week about Timothy Dalton being considered. Apparently, he was considered again at this point. And also that chap, Michael Billington, who we mentioned last week, who was in The Spy Who Loved Me as Anya's lover who gets killed. And this because, remember, I said that he tested five times for the role. This is another yeah, he one. he really wanted it. times. And they just kept bringing him in and going yeah thanks but no thanks <laughs> I mean after a while look He's to like,
1: be surely this time they, they can't be screwing me around this time
0: it's been <laughs> it's been seven years guys come on <laughs> perhaps we should start with Tom you requested this episode because you told me it represented for you some of the best and some of the worst in the franchise can you explain more about why octopusy for you why this one kind of lives large in your bond zeitgeist that's not the right well, word
2: yeah, part of it's personal. I'd been getting Bond films on VHS from like 10 years old or something, maybe even a bit younger than that. Moonraker, funnily enough, was one I rented more than once, and of course, oh, Goldfinger. Yes. And then Octopusy was the first one I went to see at the cinema. Uh, so i would have been about 12 years old and i can even remember that uh it would have been like at the lesser square Odeon or something like that It was a big cinema and we even got a souvenir presentation booklet thing with like pictures of the cast and behind the scenes stuff oh, wow! Well. it was a treasured possession that to this day i have lost Aww. Uh, But but uh, i did say that to you in an email and then i rewatched the film and i have to say i think i just about stand by that but what I'd forgotten was that the proportions are off (laughs) Uh, the the amount of some of the worst is rather larger than I imagined but I will stick up for I will stick up for basically everything that happens in Berlin including yes including Roger Moore in clown makeup I think basically all the stuff with the circus and Stephen Burkhoff all works really, really well and is genuinely new. And a lot of the rest of this film feels a bit like not even James Bond's greatest hits, but like James Bond's greatest hits, volume Two, yes. or James Bond's <laughs> second greatest hits because no, a lot like, of this is very familiar, but not done quite as well as it was the last time around.
0: It's like Greece Two, <laughs> Yes. Which was, which was set in the sixties instead of the fifties.
2: No, and it's had Michelle Pfeiffer in it. Yeah,
0: exactly. It's got Michelle Pfeiffer there's a guy in a leather jacket and a motorbike. That's about all you can remember. It's not as good. <laughs> Even to as the
2: point that there are two prominent actors who are popping up in different roles, and that does happen over the course of the series. But there's two in one movie here. You've got Maud Adams from uh, The Man with the Golden Gun coming back, and yeah. the new the new M is Major Hargreaves from The Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah. And there are some fans who believe it's the same character.
0: Ah, well, I suppose. You could retcon that even if you know it, it wasn't true, because of course they got Ray Fiennes to become M, and he'd previously been someone else. Oh no, Ray was Fiennes. that all in the run? In the,
2: Ray Fiennes was appeared in the series before Skyfall.
0: Oh, that's right. He was just in Skyfall, and then at the end of Skyfall, they made him M.
2: That's right. Because right, okay. M in the series is very
1: clearly and canonically a code name, whereas there's the Bond theory that Bond is a code name, but obviously that that's yes, a whole other debate.
2: And also all, all the other members of the kind of the regular cast of there, Louis Maxwell, Desmond Llewellyn, and then Walter Gautel as General Gogol and that Minister of Defence, he seems to be Minister of Defence for about 12 years, which is absurd. Yes. <laughs> uh, but there's his sort of family feel, even more than usual with this film. I mm.
1: did notice that with the with the Minister. I was like, has he, like, jumped parties? Because surely there's been an
2: election <laughs> in, in that time. There yeah, very much has been. <laughs> I think we got through five Ministers of Defence at the time that uh, he retains the role.
0: <laughs> well, I have to say, just on the outset, as we go into our minute challenge, which is where Stu and I take a minute to remember everything we can about this film. I had real trouble because there's a lot. But I'm laughing because I had so much fun watching this film. I really enjoyed it much more than I thought I would. I found myself laughing so much, possibly not for the reasons the film hoped. Mm. (laughs) But I... (laughs) Maybe it's the mood that I'm in, but this was kind of the right mood for me to be watching this film in, where I just would find myself guffawing with laughter uh, at random intervals, just some of the lines and some of the, you know, when Bond at the end turns up with Q in a Union Jack hot air balloon.
1: I I was going to mention that.
0: I almost fell off the couch. I
1: I love that so much.
0: It was like I just wanted to stand and applaud and go. Go, you good thing. Um, <laughs> oh, gosh. Maybe I just didn't give For Your Eyes Only enough of a chance. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's my mood. But I really just watched this. Um, I'm still chuckling, basically. So I, I had a really good time unexpectedly because I wasn't, I was expecting to hate the film, I think, because of past and, and because I've had this bias against it because of the clown makeup, which we'll get to. Well,
1: also, was, it's one of the least regarded Bond films as well. It's, it's certainly, its reputation is that it's one of the worst. Mm. And I think people forget that there's actually a lot of fun stuff in here. If, if you're willing to go with it, there's a lot of fun stuff in this movie. It's just not a good movie.
0: If you're really willing to embrace James Bond using a video camera liquid <laughs> crystal display to zoom in on a hardworking British public servant's breast.
1: And, and Natalie,
2: you know I am.
0: <laughs> Look, I am too. That was another moment that I was just like, <laughs> well done. Can't even...
2: even ticks him off what he calls his adolescent antics, and that sounds absolutely right to me.
0: Yeah, Yeah. that's it. Because, Tom, you were, as you said, about a 12-year-old boy. Do you remember any of those jokes and those lines and the, you know, lasciviousness of it as being something that was fun for 12-year-old boys? Because I imagine...
2: (laughs) 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 It's hard for me to remember, because I've seen the film so many times since then. But I was about 20... When I was in my late 20s in the UK, ITV did a complete season from Dr. No to whatever would have been the most recent one, maybe Goldeneye, and I taped them all off the TV then, and then I bought the DVDs when they came out, and then I bought the blu Rose when they came out. So I just keep watching these films, and it's hard for me now to unpick what I remember watching when.
0: <laughs> I just have the kind of infantile father who, when we would watch Bond films, and there'd be the sexy times with the ladies, he'd go, "Woo, lookie, <laughs> woo!" and he like, Because whenever James Bond is on, he gets to be like a 12-year-old boy. And I think I've just retained that somehow, that kind of love of (laughs) stupid, adolescent, pervy humour, which is is becoming more and more problematic as we go into the 2020s. But um, I'm hanging on. I'm hanging on. All right. Well, Stu, do you want to go first with your minute challenge?
1: Uh, uh, yeah, I can go first. Yeah, absolutely. Hit us off. Uh, the first thing I wrote was, in case you didn't realise this film was set in the 80s, it's about a Fabergé egg. Was that <laughs> a the thing? That's the inciting incident. I just remember, I, I have a distinct memories as a kid in the 80s, like ads for Fabergé eggs everywhere. Is that is that is that literally just a me thing or am I, am I wide of the mark there?
0: I do, do you mean like Kinder Surprise eggs or
1: something? No, maybe? no, no. There was a thing. There, there, I, I, this is another... This, oh, God. This is a thing where I'm, I think I'm going insane. There was definitely a thing in like women's magazines which were all around our house and my grandmother's house as a kid, where you could buy replica Fabergé eggs. It was a thing. It was, you could just get them. They, 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 they were, there was like a whole collection.
0: Okay, I've just found an Etsy store, which has 1980s Fabergé eggs.
1: Yes. Yeah, they were definitely a thing.
0: Okay, so this is like some sort of mail order you would send yeah, yeah, away. would yeah, yeah.
1: send away for you. You would send like a check and they would send you this, this Fabergé egg and there was like a whole series that you could collect. And wow. I was like, it's very of its time because the inciting incident is a, a real Faberge egg.
0: I have no recollection of Faberge eggs as a collector's, but. It makes total sense because I remember the ads in magazines where you get like the Franklin Mint or those creepy yes, ones. Yeah, exactly. You- it was it was
1: like that. Yeah. You could yeah. Send and get and you could collect the set.
0: Yeah. And you could get like, um, <laughs> you know, famous movie stars and they'd be in their beautiful dresses and send away and get Scarlett O'Hara from Gun With The Wind in
2: her <laughs>
0: big crinoline dress. So it makes sense that there would be I don't know. Was that a UK thing at all, Tom?
2: Or are we just crazy I think, Australians? I think my introduction to the concept of Fabergé eggs was watching this movie. Uh, oh, okay. So again, I can't I can't now unpick what I learned when. And at 12 years old, I probably wasn't buying a lot of mail-order Fabergé eggs. <laughs> uh, what, what Stuart says is, is entirely plausible.
0: <laughs> I do see, because the thing about Fabergé eggs is they're beautiful, but because they're so, so perfectly done, anything but the perfection of a Fabergé egg looks kind of tacky.
1: <laughs> well again uh it's very 80s to have tacky imitations of, of beautiful objects <laughs> that is true <laughs> um the next item on my list is uh bond is the tiger king uh so <laughs> oh, <that's, yes! laughs> he tells he tells a tiger to sit and the tiger sits do you guys
2: know what that's a reference to no i don't that is a, that is an 80s british tv reference oh god wow. is it, really so there was a dog trainer Called Barbara Woodhouse on British TV through the 80s. Right. And uh, that was her signature like, catchphrase sit. Uh, and that is exactly like what the Roger way Moore is impersonating. It. Yeah. Uh, oh, but wow. it is I mean, basically. There are so many dumb jokes in that whole most dangerous game <laughs> sequence, or which that is possibly the worst it's between that and the Tarzan yell. Well, yeah, I was going to mention uh, the Tarzan yell as well. Like, that it's is, it's I mean, so dumb because she was a dog trainer. She wasn't even a cat <laughs> trainer. I mean, it's just so stupid. It doesn't like the premise is off. Like, what are you even <laughs> doing?
0: But the, the cat, you know, I have a real fondness for cats, and Tom, I know you do too, but uh, cats don't take orders. So the fact that this one did... Just goes to show that James Bond's magical penis works on any pussy. <laughs> That's it,
1: exactly. It, it works on any pussy. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, should we talk about that sequence while we're there? Because that Tarzan yell.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was going to talk about. I mean, that that people talk about the pigeon double take as like the most egregious moment in a Bond film, but Bond does the actual <laughs> Tarzan yell. It's just
2: <laughs> just just dubbed from a Johnny Weissmuller movie. Yeah, I mean, well, like just,
1: literally the Johnny Weissmuller uh, Tarzan yell. <laughs>
2: There's a real kind of straining for effect, actually, throughout this movie. Uh, you can see it again in the, uh, that dreadful tennis gag. I don't know if that's in your notes, either of you, but during the, the chase sequence oh, with yes. Vijay, the crowd looking back and forth like they're watching yeah. a tennis match. And none of this feels effortless or organic. It really all just feels hammered into place. Yeah. And that's not the Bond films at their best. It really isn't. No.
0: Well is that because we were you going to say with that one Tom that that was because VJ was an actual tennis player?
2: Yeah again yes yeah so and and uh, plays the Bond theme the Monty yeah. Norman Bond theme to attract Bond's attention it's all just it's so smirking and self-referential and it's just you know Bond films are supposed to be fun but you like to be able to take them seriously from time to time and this film really is determined to stop you from doing that <laughs> <laughs>
0: I learned a new word today looking up that moment with the snake and the, you know, do do is oh, when you yes. say something about the world in the world. So I guess it's like a meta. Yes. I assume it's Greek. I don't know. That's the word that I learned. Uh <laughs> A, yes. a
2: piece of music that the characters can hear is said to be diegetic. Yes. But the, the incidental music which the characters can't hear is non-diegetic. Mm.
0: Right. Because he does say, doesn't he, he's like, that's a fancy tune or that's a happy
2: that's tune. a so yes. lovely tune.
0: lovely tune. But, yes, so VJ was an actual tennis player. And I love this because... I feel like the Broccoli's will just pull people into the films that they meet. (laughs)
2: Yes, exactly. I
0: I forgot to mention this during the Moonraker podcast, but the guy who played Chang, who was like the kendo warrior who Bond beats up in the glass factory, he was Michael G. Wilson's, who's Albert uh, Broccoli's stepson. He was his Aikido coach. Like, in real life. And he went, you know what? You should come be in the movie. You're really good at, you know, martial arts. Come be a henchman. We can find something for you to do. We'll find something for you to do in Moonraker. And this guy was a tennis player that Albert Broccoli met somewhere. I'll find it here. Yes. That makes a lot
1: of sense. I mean, it it was when he pulled out a tennis racket, I I was like, that is so specifically bizarre (laughs) that it must be a reference to something. And, And then sure enough, yeah, he's a tennis player.
0: So, yes, he was the first one cast, Vijay Amritraj. He was the first one cast yeah. before
1: Roger Moore.
0: <laughs> Broccoli met while watching the championships in Wimbledon. So there you go. He's actually a lovely character, and I was really sad when he died.
2: Yeah.
0: It wasn't a necessary death at all, but anyway. it's we'll, we'll a really get...
2: weird line in there that Q says, he was alive when I found him. Yeah. Does that and... imply that Q... <laughs> Put, him out, put him out of his misery? misery? <laughs> Jesus.
0: All right, 007, leaving me to finish off your dirty work. <laughs> Lucky I had this incredibly elaborate contraption to deal with. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but then he'd been killed. He got killed by the, the guy with the razor yo-yo thing.
2: Yeah, I think it's the, the suggestion is that he was mortally wounded yes. by that uh, razor yo-yo, but not actually finished off. Ugh.
0: So the question to Q is... You know, you're building a pen that can melt hot steel and uh, putting listening devices in Fabergé eggs. You can't carry a first aid kit around? Like-
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very true. He's got a little thing with him, doesn't he? That He's got like a little uh, uh, fishing tackle box. Yeah. Like surely that could be a first aid kit. Come on.
0: Exactly. Anyway, back to your list, G.
1: Yes. Um. So my next point is that uh, Bond is screaming about nuclear war while dressed as a clown. Is this satire? <laughs> I didn't get that. Uh, like it's just again like, like I just what happens in the, the process because this has to go through so many different stages from writing to, to costuming to, to editing to even the filming itself. At what point does does no one bring up hey uh, we're putting James Bond in a clown suit, guys? Are we are we sure about this? Is this gonna be okay?
2: So I'm now going to mount a defense of this sequence. Okay. yeah. <laughs> right. So firstly I'm I really like I really like the whole Stephen Burkhoff General Love. I think it's a great part. I think he plays it brilliantly. I think the, the as James Bond evil villain plans go, that's a really neat spin on mm. the, the now over familiar. Let's have the, the two superpowers at each other's throats. Yeah. What mm. he wants is to is to force a disarmament allowing so a rogue Soviet troops to. Yeah, yeah. exactly. To, to march in and he'll and we'll do it by state of this accident. So clearly you need Bond to be where the nuke is, but, the, <laughs> but you're also going to put it in a very public place. So you need to put a barrier in his way to prevent him from being able to explain what's going on. And so if he looks like the least credible, least plausible person <laughs> to be defusing a bomb, that <laughs> ratchets up the stakes enormously because who is going to take him seriously? And he look at the way that he plays it. It's some of, the, I think, Roger Moore's best acting mm-hmm. over the whole series. I mean, uh, he's, he's deadly serious. He's deadly serious. And the fact that he's dressed as a clown makes it impossible for anyone to take him seriously. And that, I think, is it's really, really well done. I really do think <laughs> it works. The other thing I think is just a little bit weird about this is that the film starts with 009 identically dressed being yes. eliminated by two of the the, uh, the circus performers. Yes,
0: Grishka so and Mishka.
2: It's a little bit like this is a video game. Yes. 009 has got killed at the circus level and now when 007 <laughs> plays he's got to start at the Sotheby's level and work his way up until he finally gets to confront the big boss it's a very strange structure
0: and the other thing about poor old 009 is that he seems just really scared like he doesn't seem like a secret agent who's cool in a crisis he seems like desperately you know fanging like away from,
1: clown who's running from murderers. <laughs> Yes. <laughs>
0: And at one point he kicks, because they outflank him and you realise they're twins, he kicks one of them with his giant clown shoe, like right in the nads. <laughs> it's, again, just unintentionally hilarious. Like, this is supposed to be a secret spy. Um, it's a
2: great shot when he crashes through those glass yes, windows and the Fabergé egg falls out of his hand. Yeah, yeah.
0: that is, that was really that's good. It's a
2: yeah. nice bit of directing from John Glenn. He's sometimes a bit workmanlike, but uh, has moments of real flair, and that's one of them.
0: Yes, and we'll get to the, his other trend that we mentioned last week is his love of pigeons. Yes, because that does show up again here but yes the, the clown sequence I think I like better now having watched it but I remember really hating it for years because I'm like you can't put 007 in a clown costume having said that when I realized just how much of that sort of last half of the film or last third of the film that he spends in that sort of, I'm trying to, is it Castilian or some sort of Spanishy, flouncy red shirt
1: with the. Yes, that's true, yeah. With the, the black vest and the he's, belt. He's, yeah, he's dressed in one of the twins' clothes.
0: Yeah, that almost is worse. Like he's, <laughs> he's dangling from the side of a train in this. He very... looks like
1: your uncle cosplaying as Zorro or something. Yes,
0: exactly exactly Stu. thank you that is that is very close to what i meant and so by comparison the clown costume is not that bad perhaps or
1: at least you've been warmed up for the clown costume yes that's right (laughs) and look i don't i don't hate the clown costume i just find it baffling because again you're absolutely right tom it makes sense in the movie when when you watch it in the movie one action follows another and suddenly bond is dressed as a clown diffusing a nuclear device but I just think that, you know, in a chicken and egg scenario, someone had to write that. And surely at some point someone said, are we sure about this scene? Are we absolutely <laughs> sure that we well, want to do want to go in this direction?
0: According to Wikipedia, it was Albert Broccoli. The original script was written by a chap called,
2: let me find it. George MacDonald Fraser.
0: Thank you very much, Tom. That is him. Author so, of the
2: Flashman novels. Okay. okay.
0: so he's new. I never heard of him in in the context of Bond before this one. So he was a novel writer then.
2: Yeah, I think it's because they wanted to do India and Flashman is a character from Tom Brown's school days. And Ah. George Macdonald Fraser wondered what happened to that boy when he grew up. And Mm. so in his imaginings, this bully from Tom Brown's school days becomes this sort of gentleman adventurer and soldier. Uh, and this was during the Britain's colonial days, so he would have spent time in India. It's a little bit sort of Kipling-esque, all that kind of stuff. And so I think that's why they got him on board for this script. But you can almost see there are two scripts fighting each other. Yes. There's one about Bond yeah. and Kamal Khan in India, and there's one about circuses and the USSR and nuclear explosions, and Absolutely. I greatly prefer the second one. Absolutely.
1: That, that that was literally the next item on my list is that there, <laughs> there is a very good – there's a very good movie set in India and a very good movie set in uh, East Germany, and <laughs> they've smushed them together into one very weird movie.
0: <laughs> it was Richard Maybaum who, of course, wrote many of the classics from the Connery era and Michael G. Wilson, Broccoli's uh, stepson, who gets involved in a lot of the writing from here on in, I believe – And they got rid of his idea for the opening sequence. This is uh, George MacDonald Fraser's opening idea was going to be a motorbike chase set at the Isle of Man TT. I assume that's a race. Um, But then they retained the moments that Broccoli had first criticised where Bond dressed as a clown and also as the gorilla. (laughs) Because I had totally forgotten about the gorilla. (laughs) We'll get to that. But, yeah, so there was – I think you're right. There's definitely a battle between different – Tones of movies much more than others, and I was really interested to note the running time of this one is two hours and ten minutes, which is the same as Thunderball.
1: Um, no, 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 Natalie, I'll just step in there uh, for a second. Um, Thunderball is actually, and I've I've gone back and, and triple checked this because I, I wasn't sure, but I, Thunderball is actually uh, seven days long. It's a full calendar week long. Uh, it is a long movie
2: uh, with long, long. Sequences Lawrence of Arabia and Gone with the Wind twice in the time it yes. takes to watch Thunderball once. Yes, exactly. <laughs>
0: Well, this one, to me, does feel like the time, because Orlov gets killed a good 30, 40 minutes before the end. It's
2: such a pathetic death, isn't it? Yes. One of the interesting things about this film, I think, and one of the things that you don't often see in Bond films is you have three villains kind of pursuing their own agendas.
0: Yes, Mm. and that was actually at the top of my list, which was uh, Octopussy, Orlov, Kamal Khan, so many villains.
2: (laughs) But like I said All of is the one I'm most interested in, and he gets the most pathetic death. He's just shot by nameless guards when Bond isn't even there. Yeah, exactly. I, I love his his confrontation scene with Roger Moore. I think is tremendous mm. as he explains his plan, which of course Bond villains are contractually required to do as soon as Bond shows <laughs> Yes, <that>. exactly.
0: <laughs> and it does have one of those great moments. Of course, you're going to do X. <laughs> yes, I love that realization. Of course. And you'll take the diamond to Mexico.
1: (laughs) Always great in a film. But I I just think, like, it's so interesting that there seems to be a fun, goofy Bond movie set in India. And a relatively grounded, gritty, spy movie, Bond movie set in, you know, with all all the Russia, East Germany stuff. Except that's where the clown stuff happens. And it, that, <laughs> I think that's why I find it so egregious. Like, like, if the clown stuff had happened in India, I think I would have been far more accepting of it because that's where all the goofy stuff happens. Except right. they, they bring it into the the grim and gritty part of the movie. And I don't know. Yeah, maybe that's why I react to it so badly. But, but it, it's just so fascinating that there's two potentially very good bond films and they've just smushed them together it's just stra- so strange
0: it's like when you get cards and you do that trick where you split them in half and then try to overlap shuffle them
1: <laughs> yes but they've <laughs> and then done you screw it up and yeah they've done what happens
0: when i do it which is like you get a big chunk of half of one just sort of pile in <laughs> and well they haven't overlapped at all that's just been a total disaster Yes. So is that your list done, Stu, or am I? Um, There there
1: was one more item I just had at the very end. Uh, I mentioned uh, the the title character, Octopussy, uh, who is lost in in the movie named after her. Octopussy and her kick-ass circus troupe, which I, I love. Love I, that stuff.
0: I love her girl. Can I and just? Me. I
1: love that that assault on the castle at the end, on the palace at the end. I mean, fantastic.
0: It's, it's silly. Uh, I mean, it's
1: dumb as hell. Don't get me wrong. Like it is so stupid, but it's exactly the sort of stupid that I <laughs> that I love in these movies, especially the Roger Moore movies. I want the whole movie to be to be dumb like that, <laughs> and it's not. I, it's it zers all over the place.
2: I do agree. I, again, I think it's a bit of a remix. You know, it, it's the volcano lair ninjas sure, yeah, yeah. in You Live Twice, yeah. or it's the space. Force in Moonraker and uh, Octopussy's Circus is just Pussy Galore's Flying Circus in Red (laughs) (laughs) Jumpsuits. Red Jumpsuits and like
0: leather bikinis for the strong women. (laughs) Yes,
2: but it is fun and it is sort of exuberant in a way that a lot of the rest of the film struggles to be.
1: And no one's really—it's one of those things where, like, no one's really like dying, like, like a lot
2: of people getting knocked on the head and falling over and that sort of thing. It's very slapstick. Yeah, these films do have a very odd relationship to violence. Mm. In that pre-credit sequence, there's a bit where the, when they're driving along in the in the two tr- the two jeeps, Bond has a, an automatic weapon trained on these guys, and he shoots up the tires yes. so they just crash because for him yes. to execute those guys with a, sub, with a submachine gun would be appalling <laughs> and then at the end of that sequence every single person in that hangar dies that's yes. <laughs> is fine absolutely fine Incinerate. <laughs> shooting those two guys unacceptable <laughs> but incinerating what is it like 60 people in that hangar fine yes. Very, very weird relationship with violence these films have.
0: I actually did notice that too, because they want the gag moment of, ha-ha, I escaped, and you can't have that if you then proceed to brutally... Murder. <laughs> you, know, you have to kind of, you have to kind of let them live at least for a little bit to appreciate. Well, we really got suckered in there, didn't we? We thought we had yes. him, but he showed us. <laughs> but then he does when he has that moment. You were talking about just a moment ago, Tom, with Stephen Burkov, and they have the confrontation, all of and bond. At one point, there's a distraction, and a Soviet soldier opens the door of the caravan and bond just turns around shoots him right between the eyes yep. like full yeah. on one shot right between the eyes and that's okay <laughs> because i suppose he's a pesky rusky <laughs> Don't know
1: why. also but that's the grim and gritty section that that's the that's the yeah. bond as a serious spy drama part of the movie
0: it is interesting that they'd never been in east berlin before It just made me think that none of the films had ever really gone to Berlin and the East-West divide there, and that's Mm. actually really interesting that they did that. And it's strange because I was alive, obviously, during this time, but I've only ever seen, you know, Checkpoint Charlie and You Are Leaving the American Sector as relics of Mm. communist era, not as, oh, this is a real thing. It's like go to Berlin, see Checkpoint Charlie. Oh, look at that. That's history. It's sort of odd remembering that, oh, yeah, this is still a thing at that time that mm. the movie came out. There's still a wall.
1: 1981.
0: 83.
1: Oh, 83, sorry, yeah.
0: Mm. <laughs> for your eyes only was 81. We've got to keep on track, Stu.
1: Yes, yes. <laughs> the mid-moors have really come unmoored for me. They're they're very <laughs> – um, I'm in a sea of moor right now.
0: Well, let me go through quickly what I had on my list uh, because there's a lot of overlap. Then we can get right into it. So I started with uh, So Many Villains. I then wrote, I'm not sure what the hell I just watched, but I did enjoy it. Um, <laughs> I wrote Bond in India, which I know was something that they'd been trying for I think in Moonraker they wanted to do a bit in India, but it was too difficult. And I also think in Moonraker or maybe in Spy they wanted to use the microplane, uh, which right, is in that yes. pre-credit sequence. So they were able to do both of those in Octopussy. I wrote Fake Crocks <laughs>
1: That's right. Oh, God, I'd forgotten about that.
0: I love fake croc. But fake croc to get over to. I mean, it's better than a
1: duck on his head,
2: I will say that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He used it twice, doesn't he? He used it going both to and from. And from. There's a weird moment where. Let us put the croc on again. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) He's able
0: to somehow fall out of a window while fighting off a a, a goon, one of Kamal Khan's goons, and they fall out of a window into the water. There's some sort of real crocodile that's looping around them. That
1: confused me. I was like, so he was attacked by a real crocodile, disappeared, and then the next time we see him, he's back in the fake croc. I was like, what happened? That's a really weird cut.
0: I think he was able to get the croc to kill the other guy and eat him, and then he swam away under the cover of darkness to find where
1: he'd parked his croc and then... But then the fact that Octopussy thinks that Bond is dead uh, like never features in the... Like, like it doesn't matter. <laughs> that's not...
0: Well, she does seem a bit shocked when he turns up in a clown
1: outfit. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. But, but then so do we.
0: <laughs> and everything else I mentioned was everything you've all said. The uh, Well, nuclear bomb. So another nuclear bomb disarming, which we had in Spy Who Loved Me. The Union flag balloon. And Goldfinger. Oh, yes, and Goldfinger, of course. Of yeah. course. But this, I'm thinking the ones where they have to do the little rotation, like, you know, Game of operation, <laughs> yes. and kind of slide it out. Yeah. The Gorilla... There's a really cool train fight. There's some really good action sequences in this one, I think, overall.
2: And the train fight is amazing, isn't it? Mm. Uh, did you, you, you haven't had a chance to watch the making of, have you, Natalie?
0: No. Well, I had to – okay, so here's the comedy of errors. <laughs> I, I have a gap in my DVD collection from the early 2000s when I collected these, and the gap covers, for your eyes only, Octopussy, A View to a Kill, and The Living Daylights. I think I have Licence to Kill. So there's, like, this gap there. And I just got onto the NBN, which is the National Broadband Network here in Australia. I had to change over my TV to the new system. And then my Apple TV wouldn't connect and wouldn't turn on and wouldn't connect. And anyway, and then I was like, well, how am I going to buy the movie and watch it? And then I remembered, oh, they're all on Stan. Okay, I'll go and subscribe to Stan, which is a local streaming service here. So I had to sign up to that. So they don't seem to have a making (laughs) of (laughs) <laughs> I can find. It.
2: Well, I'll tell you no. a couple of things about that train please, chase, which you might interesting. So, One is they nearly lost another stuntman. Oh, God. no. Not another so one. So th- this was all being shot second unit and they had the same, they were basically running the train on the same bit of track backwards and forwards. And for some reason, no one seems to be quite clear about how or why this happened. The train went past the point of the track which they were using, the point of the track where they knew where everything was. And the stuntman doubling for Roger Moore, hanging onto the side of the train, collided with a concrete post Oh God. which nobody knew was there and some of the people talking about it say it's only because he was such an experienced stuntman and so strong that he was able to continue clinging on to the train with multiple fractures like broken pelvis broken sure. broken legs because if he'd let go he would almost certainly have fallen under the wheels of the train and that would have been that wow <laughs> so Twice. he did survive he did make a full recovery but he was in hospital for months and I think the, the bit of this story I find most kind of chilling is the sequence wasn't finished, so they had to get another stuntman to come in and finish the job. Wow. Imagine being that guy. <laughs> imagine being that guy turning up on set going, right, <laughs> let's do this. Uh, and of course, in the in the time honoured fashion, or the, the the first unit stuff was all shot in the close ups of, of Roger Moore and the rest of the principal cast in the studio. So they got one of those train carriages jacked it up so the wheels could spin freely. And then the art department painted tracks and sleepers and put them on a roller and cranked that underneath them. So when you see those shots of it's clearly Roger Moore apparently hanging off the train, that is a painted backdrop that is being winched underneath him. Oh, wow. And I think it's so, so well done. There is no way, I don't believe, that you could possibly have spotted that if it wasn't pointed out to you.
0: Oh, wow, that is clever.
1: That's Got incredible. That. That, that's such a. I love that we're still in the era of filmmaking where that sort of lo-fi solution, can that they keep coming up with those sorts of things. I think it's fantastic.
2: John Dead is really good at that stuff as well. In the, the pre-credit sequence, when you, you have the jet flying through the hangar yeah. to get the shot of it flying into the hangar, that's a what they call a foreground miniature. I think you were talking on a previous episode about forced perspective. This is another example. Yes. So a model of the near side of the hangar which is between the camera and the jet, and the jet is actually flying beside the real hangar. It passes behind the model and then goes out of view, and it looks as if it's gone through the tiny gap in the doors. Right. Ah. And you can actually see this if you go back and watch it. For the, the close-ups of the jet going through the hangar, they mounted the real jet on a steel pole, put the bottom of the pole into a car, and just drove it through the hangar. <laughs> oh! And there are at least one shot where you can clearly see the pole. But... Oh, really? Oh, yeah, but the thing is, if you're watching the movie to see if you can see where the pole is, sure. then none of the rest of the movie is working. No, that's yes. right. So, and yeah. they do do a pretty good job of keeping lots of stuff in the foreground at the bottom of the frame so you can't see the car, but you can right. clearly see the pole at at least one shot.
0: Uh, I'm going to go back and watch that. <laughs> I did love the fact that, you know, in that pre-credit sequence when Bond turns up at the base, I, so it's Cuba, isn't it? That's where he's supposed to be because he takes off and he says, I'll see you in Miami to the girl, I'm guessing Cuba. But he comes in and <laughs> because the, the, the horse trailer is a disguise for the microplane and it's, it's a horse's ass.
1: It's a horse's ass. <laughs> it's just
0: <laughs> kind of a metaphor for the movie. I don't know. <laughs> Just a a, 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 a fake pantomime horse's ass. <laughs> and Bond, he drives in wearing a flat cap and suit. He's got like a reversible jacket on and this fake collar to make him look like he's wearing a turtleneck. And he gets out of the car and I just went, oh, Roger, no, don't. Why did they put him in a flat cap and a turtleneck? (laughs) They already put him in a vest later on in the movie when he goes to see Octopussy. And we talked about this last week with For Your Eyes Only, like don't put James Bond in a baggy vest. It's not for Roger Moore anyway. Just don't do it.
1: It's not his Um, best look.
0: But then he reverses all his clothes. And the girl comes up and she says, "James." He says, "Yes." Be careful, and then puts the fake moustache on.
1: <laughs> I
0: know we've talked about the clowns, but we haven't mentioned the fake moustache. And his name is General Luis Toro.
1: And he says, he says something like, "Well, that's a load of bull." That's a load of bull. <laughs> I'm like, oh.
0: <laughs> there are okay. a lot of lines in this film. Do we want to get into the the India section of the film? Because I found this really interesting. Straight you up. Done with your list. Yeah, that's kind of my list. Oh, okay, cool. I I really did not get a lot of anything detailed out. It was all just, (laughs) what the hell? But I want to do a bit of blatant, self-interested chat because I was reading about the casting of Maud Adams. Initially, she, she was way down the list, apparently. And apparently, they'd used her in a lot of screen tests for other Bonds. So she'd played... Andrea Anders in The Man with the Golden Gun. Mm. And then she was used in screen tests and then Broccoli just decided to bring her back. But they had looked at um, an actor called Sybil Danning, who I've never heard of. Tom, do you know her? I
2: know nothing (laughs) of Sybil Danning.
0: There you go. Faye Dunaway was deemed too expensive. Barbara Carrera turned it down to take the role in Never Say Never Again, she claims. It's a better Uh, part. Well, yes, a lot more fun. The casting director, Jane Jenkins, revealed that the Bond producers told her they wanted a South Asian actress to play Octopussy, so she looked at the only two Indians in then a predominantly white Hollywood, Susie Colhoe and a woman named Persis Kambata. Ah.
1: Now, Persis Pers- Kambata in uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture.
0: Yes. Now, I am related to her. Oh, somehow. <laughs> my great-grandfather, so my grandmother's father, was Parsi Indian, Called Rattenshaw Kambata, same spelling. Right. And he was from Mumbai. But he was part of the Parsis were kind of an ethnic group that moved to India uh, around the 1100s, I think. So they kind of moved out of Iran, what was then called Persia, because they were Zoroastrians, And this was when um, Islam was kind of taking over the Middle East. Mm. So they moved to India to continue practicing their religion. So they're kind of, I guess, a small but strong community that's then lasted. And so I was always told growing up, oh, you a great-grandfather was Persian. He was Persian, but actually he was Persian going back, you know, eight centuries. Right. <laughs> um, yes. So Persis Kambata was born in Bombay to a middle-class Parsi family. And I have been told by various uncles who are now dead, so I can't check, but <laughs> she is a relative in some fashion.
1: Like a distant way. Well, I mean, like, like my a- my last name is Late, and if anyone has the last name Late, they're related to me somehow. <laughs> like, that's that's how that works. So, I mean, I'm sure. Like, absolutely. You guys are probably, like, cousins four times removed or something.
0: Exactly. So that's my claim to fame. Uh, but, yes, she was famous for the Star Trek movie. And I'm not sure what else. I should really look her up more. But
1: She was a model, I think. Yes. And had done a little bit of acting.
0: Right, Uh, She was the second winner of Femina Miss India and the third Indian woman to participate in the Miss Universe pageant. Mm. There you go, in 1965. Yeah, beautiful woman. So I'm kind of sad that she didn't get the part because then I would have a more direct link to the Bond franchise. (laughs) (laughs) Although, Tom, you know, of course, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who has done... Writing for No Time up. to Die. Has she, has she I'm done stuff?
2: On a... uh, she's most well known for the one woman show and television series Fleabag.
0: But she's done rewriting on No Time to Die. like Daniel Craig. She's
2: done, she, she did a punch up on No Time to Die. That's right.
0: I'm very excited. Yeah. Has at, she the, told... at
2: the request of the director, I believe.
0: Has she told you anything?
2: We did an interview with her not long ago and she was quite circumspect, but she basically said, listen, the, the, the story was there. I, I worked on it for a few weeks. I have no idea what of mine will be in the final edit so maybe she wants to talk about it more freely when it's finally released in yeah. we hope November i had tickets to go and see it in its first week at the uh, the BFI IMAX and uh, that was the moment when i knew that coronavirus was real when those tickets were cancelled and refunded
0: oh wow i guess with the bond films you can't put the film out if you know that it's not going to break box office you know previous box office records that's kind of the whole deal with them and if yeah. nobody can go to the cinema then you're not going to make those opening numbers so
2: yeah, because these films are expensive to make. And you're right, you have a, a short window to get that money back. You make a lot more money still these days. This is changing, but still you, for a big movie like that, you make a lot more money getting people to go to theatres, go to cinemas than you do on um, digital and streaming.
0: And I think it was because of the situation in China as well, because China is such a huge market for the Bond yeah. films. With China in lockdown, I think they had to act even before it really started spreading elsewhere. Yeah, so I was talking about Percy's Cambata. And Octopussy. So they went with Maud Adams. Now, how do we think Maud Adams fares? Because she got a bit of criticism over this role, from what I can read.
1: I mean, my take is that she's, she's totally fine as, as Octopussy. I just think the character disappears in the movie named after her. Because she she's just the smuggler, isn't she? She's not inherently evil like yeah like like you expect her to be the main villain and she kind of is telling khan what to do but then also there's all this other stuff happening with the russians that he's involved in so he's sort of coming over the top of her and she just gets lost there's too many villains doing (laughs) too many things it's
2: it's not clear who is whose line manager
1: Yes, exactly.
2: And where the reporting lines are. That's right, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I I don't know whether she's reporting to him.
0: (laughs) So Orlov's mission is very clear. He doesn't like the way the Soviet Union is moving towards detente. And he says, look... Give me a couple of days, give me some tank regiments, we'll get this disarmament and
1: we'll just storm Europe. It's a very good supervillainy plot. It's, it's, it's yeah.
0: Yeah. And as Tom said at the beginning, it's not something that we've seen in terms of because obviously the politics of the time were changing. So you can't necessarily have the USSR as the big bad, but you could have elements within the USSR. So it's a clever device and it's quite obvious. But then he dies, you know, earlier than you would expect the megalomaniac general with a nuclear weapon to die in a Bond film.
1: Well, you've got to start thinning the the villain herd at that point.
0: (laughs) And then for some reason, Kamal Khan seems okay with having the bomb go off. And he double-crosses Octopussy and, and ha, you know, at the circus goes, excuse me, American generals, I need to go make some travel plans. Just and as can we'll I sit find down
2: out maybe my favourite moment of the whole film, which is Khan and what's his odd job substitute called, played by Kabir uh, Bedi?
0: Gobinda, I think it is.
2: Gobinda, that's right. Khan and Gobinda. Yes. Uh, Quietly nip out to the car, knowing they started the countdown, and the car doesn't start.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: It's great. <laughs> and the look that Louis Jordan gives Kabir Benny is priceless. That is a. And see, Stuart, that's what I'm talking about. There's this black humor that runs throughout this. Sure, section, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which is why I think the Roger Moore in a clan suit does work.
0: But it's never clear why does he intend to then take over Octopussy's smuggling business, or he's just going to take all the jewels, I guess. Well, he, he's gonna,
1: he's he's taken all those jewels, so he's so Octopussy thought they were going to to Russia, I guess she thought they were going or somewhere, or they were they were going to be taken somewhere else, and he's like, no, no, no I'm gonna I'm gonna take them myself.
0: So he's just double crossing her out of the deal, yeah, basically, exactly. and maybe he can inherit her harem full of eager, <laughs> spirituality-seeking. I did. Sure. I actually really love that they put that in there because she does have a harem full of women from all over the world, all in beautiful silks and saris, and it's like, what, what are they all doing there? And she says, oh, everyone comes to India looking for a guru, so I'm just that for them. I really like that little point.
1: Because <laughs> so they're all there on an pray love journey.
0: Exactly. <laughs> they're all there. They've been <laughs> to Italy, had the pasta. Now they're going to India to um, – be sexy in a pool. Um,
2: <laughs> that, that well-known path to end
0: It <laughs> As a part of their spiritual you know, journeys.
2: The other thing I remember about Maud Adams' casting is there was a lot of attention given at the time to the fact that she was a bit older than the typical Bond girl. And so she was supposed to be a more age appropriate leading lady for Roger Moore. She was 38 <laughs> and, oh Roger Moore was, and Roger Moore was 56. So in other words, what? she's 18 56. years younger than him instead of, 30 years younger than him, which was the age difference between Roger Moore and Carol Bouquet in the last film.
0: Oh my goodness. Yeah. Oh, Hollywood. <laughs>
1: Sorry, Having I... said that, I mean, they're, they're not wrong. She does feel more sort of matched w- with Bond, but, yeah, you're right. Like, it's still a ridiculous age gap.
0: Yeah, and you see, this this fact finds me after I was watching Going to Bed Last Night, a little YouTube documentary, a little YouTube channel uh, that talks about Hollywood's golden era, and I was watching this little video about whatever happened to Baby Jane and the, the famous, quote, unquote, feud between Joan Crawford and Betty Davis and how they took – Whatever Happened to Baby Jane on, because they were getting older, roles were drying up and they knew this would be, you know, really good for them both to get back into the spotlight. And
2: Is that the Be Kind Rewind channel? Yes, it is. I love that channel. That's fantastic.
0: She's great. Highly recommend. Highly recommend. They're really interesting deep dives. They sort of range from about 15 to 30 minutes. Incredibly well-researched. Very funny. And she was talking about how in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, and the, the actors do... They both do look older and they're made up to look older as well. But in real life, they were only 54. And she puts it in perspective by saying, you know, right now, Nicole Kidman is 53. Mm. So, you know, and you've got all these women, like you've got Kate Blanchett and Halle Berry and Jennifer Lopez, who are all 50, just looking incredible. And they don't look 50. And obviously, probably surgical things have changed. But, you know, we have changed that way. I suppose you've got to look like you're still 30, even if you're 50. <laughs> so we well, have. I think
1: we've, I, we pointed out before that, like, Daniel Craig is 52 years old. Like, he's yes. not far off Roger Moore. And yet he does not look like Roger Moore. <laughs>
0: No, but how no. old is are all the women who've played across uh I'm just looking up how old Leah Sado is who well yeah cool.
1: exactly like like and there's a similar there's a similar okay. problem across many of his movies
0: all right well she's thirty five now
1: so i think she yeah. so she was about she was about 16, 30 seventeen
0: or, years younger yeah. than him. I guess for Hollywood, that's okay. <laughs> it's practically the same
1: age. Well, again, like, it was one of those things, too, where in Inspector, Boo Hiss, there was um, Monica Bellucci was was cast and people were like, oh, finally, an age-appropriate Bond girl. And then she was in it for about five minutes yes. and then left again.
0: That's right. The greatest sin that a woman can do in a Bond film is, A, sleep with Bond and, B, be
1: over 30
0: yes <laughs> <laughs> did you notice in this one they even bring in a hot young money penny
1: Yes. yeah as if they're getting ready to replace her
0: well I guess they are because I think she does a view to a kill and then that's it for Lois Maxwell mm, I can't remember right. yeah. yeah
2: she doesn't outlast Caroline era. Bliss I believe takes over for Timothy Dalton's two films
0: and then it's uh Samantha Bond who takes over yes. for Pierce Brosnan yeah uh it's just I remembered that because her Name is Bond, um, but she, she he walks in and goes, oh, you're looking more younger and beautiful every day, and she's like, I'm right here, like 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 a school mom, like they deliberately <laughs> made her very matronly, and then Bond gives her one rose, yes, and then gives the rest of the bouquet to the hot young piece,
1: and I was really
0: offended on Money Penny's behalf. <laughs> I mean, it was one of those moments where I was like laughing just at the audacity of it, but also quite offended for poor old Money Penny.
1: I mean, it is it is a playful. I mean, there are always sort of playful encounters between Bond and Money Penny, and this one's no exception. But the but it is you're right. It is kind of a backhanded sort of statement of what's going on. It's like what is what are you doing right now, James? What's going on?
0: <laughs> and again, he had his hat, although he, had he didn't his hat quite again. he didn't quite throw it. But we never actually see Roger Moore wearing a hat, apart from when he wore the clown wig. <laughs> yes. Maybe he was contractually, you know, obliged to not wear hats, but he had to fling one at the coat rack. It's just very weird. I don't know that anybody was still wearing hats as a normal daily kind of casual wear in 1983. <laughs> um, Michael Jackson? Yeah, okay, true. You've, you've proved me wrong immediately. <laughs> Wasn't I think he he's trying the to, only one, though. He was trying to cover up the face, though, wasn't he? <laughs> Quite I possibly. Know. I don't know what the current standing is on making Michael Jackson jokes because it all it's just all a bit uncomfortable. Um, uh... <laughs> I'm fairly
1: sure his hat is pretty safe territory. <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: I wanted to talk about some of the jokes in India, which...
2: Are... It's a lot of funny foreigners in this film, aren't it's there? It, yes. all a bit upsetting. It's... Sword swallowers and fake ears and... Ugh.
1: Not anywhere near as bad as it could have been, but certainly not great. It's
2: yeah, I mean the really weird weird scene in Kamal Khan's palace where he gives Bond the stuffed sheep's head and Bond won't touch it. But isn't Bond supposed to be a gourmet? Isn't he supposed to be a bon vivant? Yes, exactly. He should he should relish this new colouring experience not turn yeah. his nose up like he's on a package tour.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Well, he did make that joke after the Dangerous Game sequence. Where oh, he, that is a very
2: funny joke, yes. yes. Are you with our group? No, <laughs> I am with the economy tour. That's a very good joke. It's
0: a good – because he's so messed up after that. <laughs> and I do, I do love the – because we mentioned there were a few bad puns there with the Tarzan yell and whatnot, but when the snake crawls over him and he says, hiss off.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
0: It was one of those things where someone went, had a few drinks and went, I know, hiss off. We can have a snake roll over Roger Moore's legs. Hiss off. There we go. Done for the day. Good job all. (laughs) Pens down. But Um, actually
1: the um, the dinner scene sparked a a memory in me because I was like, this feels very Temple of Doom. Yes. Which I had is, the same thoughts. Yeah, and I, I was I was I went and looked it up because I'm like I wonder if because obviously Spielberg and Broccoli knew each other and and a lot of the Indiana Jones stuff is deliberately homaging James Bond and I I was like maybe they used this scene as an inspiration for that scene in Temple of Doom but Temple of Doom came out in 1984 in May 1984 so presumably like they wouldn't have seen this scene before they shot anything for, for Temple of Doom. So was Indian cuisine on people's minds within, in the zeitgeist at that time? Like, what, what was going on?
2: What's even I... more weird is that both A View to a Kill and Temple of Doom have minecart chases in their oh, final act <laughs> but the minecart chase in temple of doom had originally been planned for Raiders of the lost ark and they didn't have room for it oh wow so yeah i think there may have just been these things in the zeitgeist
0: i do not recall a minecart chase at the end of a view to a kill no. so that's going to be a revelation for, for next week for
2: blotting at least some of a view to a kill out of your memory. <laughs>
0: I mostly remember James Bond they just they put him with a lot more women I think as if it's like quick throw women at him therefore it won't be so obvious that he's old because all these chicks are, are keen for him so we'll be able to kind of bombard women and go no 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 he's really sexy look all those women are keen on him go on <laughs> yes the the line with the indian chap where he so he wins he plays Kamil khan at backgammon and this is the thing I just wanted to mention. So, this movie, the title Octopussy comes from a short story. A collection called Octopussy in the Living Daylights. And the backstory that Octopussy has, which is that her father was a traitor, Bond let him, you know, commit suicide rather than go to trial for treason, which was considered an honourable alternative. And that's the actual short story. In the written short story, it's just the story of Bond going to meet this guy and it's from that guy's perspective. And he goes off and lets himself be poisoned by his favourite octopus. They also take a short story called The Portrait of the Lady. So the whole Fabergé auction. Property. Sorry, yes, you're right. The Property of a Lady. Portrait of a Lady is Henry James. <laughs> <laughs> the Property of a Lady. So I haven't read that one, but is that just an auction or is there more to it, Tom? I can't, it's I'm not sure. It's basically
2: if just an auction. They use the the fact that this, uh, I can't remember, I think it is a Fabergé egg, this piece of jewellery has turned up in Britain and is being auctions they think that the soviets are using that as a payoff so the money's going to find its way to a double agent and they use the auction to smoke out a soviet operative and it's all very low key it basically just ends with that is the guy we thought we thought he was and then he'll be arrested and and sent back to russia the end yeah yeah <laughs> The backgammon game to me is just a rehash of the golf game in Goldfinger, even with the same visual punchline. Oh, yes, exactly. Our job crushing the golf ball and crushing the dice.
0: I forgot about that. Yeah, he crushes the dice, doesn't he? Which strikes me as very difficult to do. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he's been getting one of those little hand grippy machines and really working it hard. (laughs) but yes so again it's this this um hodgepodge i suppose of little bits and pieces of bond stories crammed into a bigger original story but when he wins that money and he divvies it up he prefers to get cash so he divvies it up with his local contacts and gives vj a bunch and then says that'll keep you in curry for a few weeks
1: yeah that that was the most borderline
0: (laughs) and i was like Oh no, because I mean, sure, curry is an Indian dish. Uh, There's no doubt about it. Uh, I want to believe the best in everyone. (laughs) It was like, (laughs) oh no. And then when he gets the money back off him during the chase sequence and then throws it into the street and yells rupiah to be a distraction. And again, I was like, is that okay? I don't, I don't know if that's okay. Because like, I'm, I'm being honest, if someone drove past me and threw wadges of cash into the air, I'd be running after them and picking them up. I don't think that is a particularly Indian, I think that's a fairly human thing. If someone's just going to throw random money in the street, I'm going to pick it up. Sure, uh, yeah, that, that
1: didn't seem especially problematic to me, that, that particular bit, but definitely the curry line was a bit, yeah. I was like, oh, they're, they're dancing right up to that line, aren't they?
0: <laughs> and the, the guy who's lying on the bed of nails and gets up, Bond then throws... Well, that was like something nails. out of Aladdin.
1: I mean, for God's sake. It,
0: it was, yeah. And he goes, get off my bed. And then he takes the sword from the sword swallower and then hands it back later and says, you better stick this back in yourself. And it's just, There's all these lines that I was sitting there laughing my head off at just the sheer silliness of them, but also going, I don't know if I should be laughing. I don't know if this is okay anymore. Am I a bad person? And also I found it really disconcerting to see the use of animals in the film, particularly in the circus, of the elephants doing tricks. I think that shows how much culture has kind of changed Mm. around the use of animals. And and they've got a bear in the parade. I was going to
1: say that for some reason the bear really upset me. Like the elephants are fine. I was like, oh, they've got a bear though. That's not great. Yes.
0: And they've got a baby tiger. You mentioned Tiger King, but Magda, who's the other Bond girl, Mm. Uh, and I do want to talk about her, but she's passing around a baby tiger at one point, and I was like, "No, don't take a tiger! Oh God!" But that's just that's the way things were.
2: I don't think it would even occurred to audiences in 1983 that a circus ought not to have animals in it. That's what circuses had; they had animals. Yeah, yeah. That's what – absolutely. For.
0: Of course, no, no bones about it. That's that's what so many elephants were used in, and others, lions and tigers and bears and everything. It's just shows how much things have changed in a relatively short period of time where I you know, don't think you can any circuses. There might be in some places, but certainly after Tiger King, the Netflix series, <laughs> hopefully people will be more reticent to go to shonky uh, animal places. But, yes, Magda, I did want to mention her. So she was another Swedish actress that Broccoli had seen in a movie and decided to cast. I don't know about you guys, but for the entire film she looks like Somebody has put, like, a finger smudge worth of dog feces right under her nose. (laughs) (laughs) She has this really disgusted sneer the whole time she's on screen. She's
1: got resting dog poop faces, what you're saying to me.
0: (laughs) It's really strange. It was really off-putting because I didn't know. She's totally underwritten. She's kind of a girlfriend of... Kamal Khan, but she's also one of Octopussy's girls.
1: Yeah, it was very unclear who she was. Again, the, the corporate structure of this organisation is very nebulous. <laughs> um, you know, like, just like who is, who is she answering to? At the end, it seems like she's working for Octopussy, but then at the start, she's definitely taking orders from Khan. It's like, is she on loan? Like, what's going on? Yeah. Very weird.
0: She has that fantastic thing when she leaves Bond with the egg and he lets her steal it and then she repels out of the balcony using her sari. That was really cool. That's great. And she's just in a bikini, as you do. Sure.
1: But, it's a Bond film.
0: But she's so uh, – when they have dinner, you know, when he's kidnapped and he's in his tuxedo and she's sitting there, she's kind of eating with this look of disgust constantly on her face. And then she seems to know that he's escaped and he's running around trying to find out what's happening with the meeting with Olaf in his monsoon palace.
1: Yeah, there's a weird shot of her, like, doing, like, a little sideways look as if she knows what's going on. And, but yeah. she never, like, raises the alarm or anything. It just but sort of she, there.
0: She goes and uses her hairdryer on dry hair, I will point out.
1: Yes, yes. <laughs> um, like a psychopath.
0: I mean, I suppose you could be styling it, but it, she uses it in and the way it seems to be portrayed that she knows Bond can listen in. So she's using her hairdryer to interfere with.
1: Yeah, well, I, I thought that's what she was doing, but then by the time she turns it off it's played as if she was just drying her hair. Yes. Right? They kind of split the difference between at the start of that sequence, it seems like she's doing it to throw Bond off the scent, but then at the end she's just drying her hair and she puts it down again.
0: If she had wet hair and she hadn't had that moment of looking out and seeing Bond kind of run out of the room, Mm. then, yeah, okay, I can take it as a she's just drying her hair and it's interfering with Bond's thing. But she has that deliberate, oh, I've seen him go.
1: Exactly. And she's got dry hair. Yeah.
0: It's Why is so she weird? doing that?
1: Exactly. It,
0: it's so weirdly underwritten. And also that character, and I, I mentioned this before with Bibi Dahl last week, you know, normally that kind of first Bond girl, if that makes sense. And I'm not talking about the pre-sequence because there's always a pre-credit sequence Bond girl. Uh, and that was the beautiful Cuban lady who was just showing her underwear <laughs> while driving a car. <laughs> uh, come be a spy. Be a secret agent. Do you have nice legs? Are you willing to flash your gussets? Then come, be a spy. <laughs> there's a lot of gusset the work. The British Secret it, Service wants you. <laughs> so there's always that Bond girl. And then there's kind of your middle Bond girl who tends to end up dead.
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh-huh. she's definitely in that category. Like Magda should be dead in any other Bond movie, but she's weirdly like working for all the different bad guys.
0: Yeah, she's not betraying anyone. Bond doesn't get any information off her. He just kind of has to sleep with her so that he can get her to steal the egg. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, And again, that's that script writing issue of she's kind of in both stories, I suppose, because she ends up as the ringmaster of sorts at the circus.
1: Roger Moore seems kind of weirdly resigned to the fact that he's going to have to sleep with this beautiful woman. And she <laughs> seems weirdly resigned to the fact that she's going to have to sleep with him. And it's like, guys, they've seen, just not they've sleep seen together. Earlier,
2: They've seen earlier <laughs> Bond films. They know the rules. That's it,
1: yeah. They, they know the rules. They're like, well, this is the part where we have to sleep together and then I betray you. Okay. Right, excellent.
0: <laughs> and then they're getting champagne or something. And when, when Bond goes to get it on with Octopussy, it's a really interesting. They try to give her... I guess they try to give her a get out of jail card because she's a bit sensitive about the fact that she's a
1: smuggler. She knows she could be doing something S- sensitive. I would say downright defensive about the fact well, that she's a smuggler.
0: You know, because she says to him, "I'm a businesswoman, and these women are here to get spiritual guidance, and I train them in in various businesses, and I've diversified into hotels and circuses and things like that." She's a kick-ass businesswoman, Octopussy. Go her, but then. She's smuggling and Bond kind of points this out and she's like, hey, well, you're a paid assassin, so, yeah, <laughs> you can't judge me. And he's like, oh, but I do, I do very much. Because she tries to kind of get him on side, doesn't she? And he's like, I'm not for hire.
1: Well, she yeah, she she tries to recruit him, basically, and say, you yeah, come work for me. He's like, I'm not for hire.
0: Mm. And so then he storms in after, she storms away, and then he storms in after her, plants a big kiss on her and goes, you're right, we are two of a kind. I don't know what that meant. <laughs>
1: No, it just, it means nothing. It means nothing.
0: (laughs) Like he snogged her and then went, ah, we are two of a kind. Uh, What? And then there's like this very relaxing shot of them sitting down. Again, it's one of those things because Roger Moore's getting older, the sex scenes are not sexy. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah. you're worried someone's going to do their hip. <laughs> it's, it's
0: not that. It's just that they, can't, they They kind of do it with Magda where they're sort of in the sheets and he's kind of under the sheet and she's sort of leaning on top of him and it's a, a it's a bit better staged. But he, he and uh, Octopussy are supposed to kind of fall together and fall on the bed and there's this mm. top-down shot of I don't know if it was a waterbed. It had that kind of...
1: Slightly. I thought it was at first. I think it was just very uh, billowy.
0: Yeah, billowy satin sheets. And they fall down, but he's, like, in his vest. And,
1: yeah. and, 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 and I, we even said, like, like you know, in his first couple of movies, he was shirtless a lot. Yeah. And it has been a long time since we've seen him without a shirt.
0: Well, we did see a nipple, though. We did get one. <laughs> we, did,
1: we still of get a nipple.
0: Ridiculously large <laughs> nipples because he gets stung by a leech.
1: Yes, that's right.
0: Burning the leech off his chest, and we got a nipple, bit of nipple action. But yeah, so he kind, of, they kind of collapse together, and then in the morning he gets up, gets fully dressed, and then he notices something happening. Like all of the goons are planning their subterfuge attack, stealth attack, I should say. He notices, he's got a feeling, an octopus. He says, well, will come back to bed," and then they kind of collapse into bed again in the same way. And I'm like, at least let him leave his shirt off or something, because like the way he grabs her and kisses her is kind of very bond, you know. I'm going to kiss you now, and you have no say in this, which again, I don't,
2: you know, I, don't
0: know. I don't know if that's okay anymore. These
1: movies complex dance around consent.
0: Yeah, but it's, you know, it's like, oh, sometimes that's, you know, a bit of the chase, a bit of the throwdown, a bit of the like, ah, oh, sorry, I'm uh, very inappropriate. I'm sure it was very consensual. I'm sure that she stormed off saying, I'm storming off. You're very welcome to come in and snog me, though. Um, <laughs> but I have to have this moment. Yeah, I'm sure it was there. All oh, of these <laughs> podcasts inevitably really end up with me just talking about can we just get some more sexy times going? On, please? I don't know what's wrong with me. You're one of the
1: only people who are calling for these movies to be more horny.
0: <laughs> well, no, just horny in a better way.
1: Right. This- oh, that's true. <laughs>
0: These ones were just, you know, Roger Moore kind of collapsing onto a bed in a vest. It's not sexy. No, that's true. And I don't know, like, where were the women on set? And this is the whole problem. They probably didn't have any going, yes, let's, yeah. It was probably just John Glenn going, yeah, we'll have you fall on a bed. That's what happens. (laughs) Uh, But, yes, the pigeon moment, John Glenn's pigeon moment, was when Bond sneaks out. He escapes from the Moon Palace and, He's sneaking around, and then a pigeon flies
1: out. Yes, and I noticed that. I was like, "Ah, Glenn's at it again."
0: Yeah, that's his motif. And he also—it kind of happened with the tiger too. That was kind. Oh no, there was a spider web in that uh, dangerous game sequence.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, there was a there was a genuinely disgusting shot where he squashes a, a spider. Yes. And like, goop goes everywhere. I'm like, oh, okay.
0: Now, I've been talking and rambling a lot. Tom, are there any other things about this film that you can think of, given that it's, you know, one that you've returned to again and again, that watching it again, you know, recently for this podcast maybe stood out as better or worse?
2: Or There's a few little sort of miscellaneous points which we haven't covered, which I could kind of rattle off. Um, Please do. It annoys me that Octopussy says octopi. <laughs> Which is oh, that- uh, hyper pedantry gone wrong because octopus is a Greek word. Mm. Uh, so it will it not have a Roman uh, Latin ending to pluralize it. If you absolutely insist on giving it a Greek plural, it should be, believe it or not, octopodes.
0: Octopodes.
2: <laughs> But octopuses is fine.
0: Octopuses um, is correct. Okay.
2: Yeah. I think you might have talked about this on previous episodes, but there's this this weird thing in the Roger Moore films where MI6 just establishes a new headquarters in whatever city Bond <laughs> fetches up. Oh, yes. Yes. I love I that.
0: I forgot to mention that one.
2: Oh, it's it's great. so bizarre. Clearly, they can't I think it just wasn't send. bizarre. I think they, it was. They can't just bizarre. send Bond some gadgets they have to ship q and his entire laboratory to wherever one specific agent happens to be i
1: i it's... genuinely love that tom and i want it to come back in the new movie <laughs> i want i want like the new q Wish to show up like in these <laughs> foreign locales i want that to happen
2: yeah um, what, of... one line that stood out for me this time around one of the other things this film is famous for is it being impossible to keep track of which fabashay egg is which But one thing I hadn't spotted before is that the whole basis on which the film gets going is Kamal Khan's urgent need to get the real Fabergé egg back because there is, quote, an unscheduled inventory in two days. (laughs) Let's just (laughs) parse that sentence through, shall we? An unscheduled uh, unscheduled inventory in In two days. days.
0: Mm. I don't know about it, but it's happening (laughs) in 48 hours. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> oh god that had completely gone over my head but you're right it makes no sense
1: i think by that point so, in the film i i'd sto- i'd given up trying to figure out whether it was the real one or the fake one i was like it's it's fine
0: and also at that auction would people really be able to pick up the egg and look at it seems even in 1983
2: seems unlikely <laughs> and, yeah i think this this does feel like there were there were two james bond films one of which I greatly prefer to the other, and they've been sort of blended together, and it's not a very happy mix. But so that the tone is all over the place, very broad comedy in some places, and much more kind of serious spy stuff in others. And I think probably what makes it work at all, despite his advanced years, is mm. Roger Moore just breezing through it. He somehow <laughs> yeah. manages to take these two disparate tones and make them both work. And I think it's very easy for us now, in the age of Daniel Craig to say, well, you know, he was just a joke, wasn't he? But he knew exactly how he wanted to play this part and he was hugely popular in the role. I think it's also worth reminding ourselves that Octopussy came out a few months before Never Say Never Again. It cost less than Never Say Never Again and it made more money at the box office.
0: Yes. It was Are you going to do
2: never say never again for the for the podcast?
0: I feel like we should. I feel like we've be going
1: back and forth, but yeah, I think we, we might have to do it next.
2: Um, I would do it next week. I think if I was in in your position, I can understand why you want to do it at the end as a kind of a be- appendix. Maybe do the the 1967 Casino Royale as well. Hmm. I've but heard that's I think... awful.
0: I own it on it's, DVD, it's, but I've always been scared to watch it.
2: To, to quote a line from. One of my colleagues on Best Pick talking about a different movie. It's hard to judge it as a film because it's not a film. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure what? what it is, but it's not a film. There were, I think, six different directors. At, oh, my at God. One point, all shooting material simultaneously. And <laughs> at the end, the producer was so grateful for the efforts of the one person who sort of managed to pull it all together in the edit. He said, I'm going to give you a special credit on the film as supervising director. And he turned oh. around and said, "I don't want anyone to think this film was supervised, least of all by me." <laughs> <laughs> but in terms oh. of the the evolution of the Bond films, like I said, like, like why Roger Moore had to come back and do yet another one at the age of 57, and my own experience growing up watching them as they were being released, I think that kind of sweep of the history of the cycle it's worthwhile watching never say never again in sequence and mm. seeing how it affects the films around it
0: all right well maybe we will because i i've always been of the very kind of hissy like it's not a bond film <laughs> because it's not eon but it is kevin mcclory and it does have a lot of bond elements and a lot of stuff that's so familiar to bond that you know if you, the music and the title sequence and all that stuff that they couldn't do Mm. and uh, how they then um, do it. Oh. And also, Sean Connery has quite the spectacular toupee.
2: So. That's another thing I wanted to mention about Octopussy. This has got to be one of the worst theme songs of the series. Isn't it terrible? <laughs> Not only is it kind of wet and weedy in its own right, but when that sack starts, it just sounds like porn. Yes, it sounds like it we're does. going to see Roger Moore in the Red Shoe Diaries. It's just <laughs> dreadful.
0: <laughs> and it was John Barry composed it. Your famous, it's sponsor. not his best oh, throughout
2: the actually. This is not his best score. He comes back, I think, for one more. I think he does The Living Daylights, which is a really, really good score. This feels phoned into me.
0: Well, <laughs> the lyrics are by Tim Rice, and now if, oh, if, really? if, if I am, to, well, that's what I said in the opening, I believe so. No, I, I think that so, is correct. And if it's the Tim Rice, isn't he Sir Tim Rice now? Isn't he Andrew Lloyd Webber's occasional lyricist or was? Or am I getting absolutely. Tim Rice. so what's he doing with it? <laughs> And who is Rita Coolidge? Who was she?
2: She was some popstrel of the age, I think. I can't even remember myself. I, I think this is probably her biggest hit.
0: Yeah, it, it's more baffling than For Your Eyes Only with Sheena Easton being in the title sequence, quite frankly.
2: American recording artist was, for a time, married to Chris Christopherson. I'm just reading here. Oh, lovely.
0: It's so non-memorable. Forgettable, that's the word I'm looking for. It's so forgettable. <laughs> I mean, the, the opening credits does have some pretty full-on frontal boob shots i
2: hope, <laughs> hope it's maurice binder who i think ran out of ideas for james bond title sequences sometime in the mid 70s
0: <laughs> and they're just he's got like a woman with the sort of pearls or something down her boobs or chains or something just across her nipples
2: Do you uh, remember how title sequence for a view to a kill starts no okay all right i'm just gonna leave that with you
0: okay <laughs> I know that I love that theme song, though. I know that The
2: theme song is a banger of you to a kill. It's,
0: it's like it's, one it's of the best. It's by far
2: the best thing of the, in the movie. I was listening to a, one of your previous podcasts, and I think it was used to refer to the fact that it's very weird that after the hard reboot for Daniel Craig in Casino Royale mm-hmm. and then Quantum of Solace, which follows on directly from that, we cut to, in Skyfall, him immediately becoming a grizzled veteran practically over the hill. Yes, yes. exactly, because the series
1: and has to deal with the fact that it's 50 years old at that point.
2: There is a fan theory, which I adore, which is that in between Quantum, at the end of Quantum of Solace, yes. at the beginning of Skyfall, Daniel Craig, that, that iteration of James Bond, fights Dr. No, foils Red Grant, mm-hmm. yep. defeats Goldfinger, takes part in Operation Thunderball, disguises himself as a Japanese <laughs> yep, fisherman, yep. marries and loses Tracy battles Blofeld on an oil rig, smuggles diamonds posing as Peter Franks, romances Solitaire, duels Scaramanga, executes Stromberg, travels into space, locates the ATAC, <laughs> thwarts General Orlov, drops Zorin off a blimp, faked the assassination of General Pushkin, ended the of his drug lord, Franz Sanchez, took revenge on rogue agent, Alec mince publishing mogul, Elliot Carver, shot dead Electric King, and survived the destruction of Gustav Graves' Ice Palace. And, and I And that's I why he looks a idea. bit tired. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Exactly.
1: <laughs>
0: It was a very busy three-year period.
1: <laughs> I do love that theory. I love that, like, yeah, that the, the Casino and Quantum are the prequels and then the rest of the series happens and then we catch up to Craig and he's just very tired and old.
0: <laughs> oh, that's so good. I feel like that's the James Bond um, Christmas carol. <laughs> like, on the first Bond of Christmas, <laughs> Bond gave to me the death of Dr. No. On the second day. <laughs> And so on and so forth. Um, well, Tom, you you are a Bond fan, so as we approach sort of wrapping up the podcast, what are, are your other favourites or memorable moments? And you've been very kind in listening to our podcast. Or is there anything that we've gotten terribly wrong? Or, or Oh,
2: the other thing I remember hearing you speculate about is when Connery started wearing a hairpiece. And the answer is he was wearing a hairpiece from Dr. No. Really? I I subsequently found that out and I was shocked because the early yeah. A little toupé at the back and a little piece at the front. And then it becomes obviously a full-on wig by the time you get to Never Sin Ever Again.
1: Yeah, well, I was going to say, because
2: it's separate bits at the start,
1: right? Like it's just sort of filling in where he's a bit thin and then it becomes a full-on rug. (laughs)
0: It's an interesting thing, isn't it, with with men and hair, because as much as I want to say just rock it, I can totally understand how going bald, particularly younger, would be quite disheartening. And I know that some people like, is it Wayne Rooney, who's the footballer over there? And he was quite young and went quite bald and went off and got plugs and was really open about it and went, yeah, I'm really rich and I wanted to have hair. So I went and got (laughs) plugs and he owned it. And I'm like, good for you, buddy. And then there are people who I know, I don't want to talk out of school, but there's a journalist who, I don't think he's in Brisbane anymore, but he was in Brisbane. And the rumour that I heard is that he went on holiday for like six
2: weeks (laughs) and
0: he went overseas and came back and all of a sudden like had hair.
2: His hair was a lot fuller. Um, I don't know um, if so, this is true. Uh, it, it might very well not be, but there were rumours when he was all over British television that veteran broadcaster Terry Wogan had a series of six wigs, which would gradually that, get longer, worn over six weeks, and then he'd go back to the short one again as if he just had a haircut.
0: Oh, I, my God. I actually know there's <laughs> quite a prominent person in Queensland that I learnt during my time in government. Oh, God, how do I put this? A prominent dignitary has the same thing. <laughs> uh like has a,
1: a series of wigs has at various a series
0: lengths. yeah a series of pieces wow that's why like when you said that tom i'm like i've actually heard of this before <laughs> from another person maybe it's not uncommon to give that just a slightly growing effect crazy because <laughs> you know for women obviously we're constantly trying to hide our age and i'm not well not everyone there there are women out there who are more mature and happy with themselves than I am but for me I'm constantly trying to hide my age I was always like why would you get Botox you don't need it and now I'm like maybe I do need it Uh, maybe I should get it so uh, it's kind of almost reassuring to know that sometimes men go through these things as well but I do like that Roger Moore has never really like I can't imagine that he worked out for James Bond
1: no it strikes I me he that he's always just been a shape. vaguely athletic sort of build and and he's just been
2: coasting on that his entire life yeah, well, his tra- story that when he was first cast every couple of weeks, either Harry or Cubby would say, "Cut your hair shorter and lose some weight," and so he'd he'd work out uh, and have another haircut uh, and the <laughs> same feedback would come back and eventually said, "I don't know why they just didn't cast a thin actor with a short hair in the Ooh. first place. <laughs>
0: I put this in my Moonraker recap online, but I found this fantastic behind-the-scenes Super 8 footage from Moonraker, and uh, they're in St. Mark's Square in Venice filming the hovercraft stuff, and there's all these this, this scenes of Roger Moore, you know, waiting to film things, just smoking cigars.
2: Mm. He and, had in his, in his contract one of the things he got, as well as a percentage of the profits and his salary was an unlimited supply of Cuban cigars.
0: No <laughs> way.
2: Yep, it was in his rider.
0: <gasps> Can you imagine Daniel Craig? Even, like, maybe he gets, maybe he asks and gets a box of them or something. But can you imagine him going, oh, the dressing room must always have Cuban cigars in there? I just can't even.
2: Can't it even. was a different time. It was a different time.
0: Oh, but, yeah, so I would like the idea that Roger Moore is just, hey, he's just sexy. That's how he is, as opposed to, like, super buff. But even Pierce Brosnan wasn't super, super Like, I think he was toned.
1: I think he was consistently in better shape than Roger Moore was. But Roger Roger Moore's, like, whole deal was that he was the suave Bond. He was the the gentleman Bond.
0: But then they'd have these outrages, and we talked about this last week, where the gap between his physicality personally and what his (laughs) stuntmen could do is just growing. Because particularly, you know, that train scene that you were mentioning, Tom, where he's hanging off by his fingertips. He's gripping onto the side of this thing. And Roger Moore's giving this acting like, but then when you see it from the stuntman perspective, it looks uber polished.
2: (laughs) Roger Moore overdubbing Bond's grunts of exertion, uh, which is particularly obvious again when you start looking for it.
0: Yes. And when he's one of the Mishka Grishka twins is throwing knives at him in that dressing room and he's kind of fumbling all around the place and he's got this real look of terror like, whoa. it's like you're a super spy, dude. You've confronted worse things <laughs> than a very fancily dressed knife thrower. <laughs> yeah,
1: I was going to say than a, a small man with a knife.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, and when he pretended to be dead to get out of the monsoon palace. Because for some reason, Kamal Khan had dudes hanging up in his cold locker
2: that's a reference to a a short story called the most dangerous game where humans are hunted for sport and so i think this was a a regular pastime of kamal khan and those were previous players of the game
0: so yes so um other bond moments or that are your favorites or anything tom i don't want this chat to end because i'm having so much fun like this is the thing with this movie, and I'm trying to work out where I'm going to rate it because I really kind of enjoyed watching it, even though it's a
2: mess. I, don't... <laughs> I think the, the fight on the plane is very well done, although I think what yes. they learn here, they are going to really deploy in The Living Daylights. There's a fight on a plane towards the end of The Living Daylight, which is one of the best action sequences in the entire franchise. Mm. And they're kind of feeling their way a bit here because it's quite short, that fight, but uh, it's very effective. There's a lovely gag with Roger Moore sliding down a banister as well and having to use the submachine gun he's holding to shoot off the sort of decorative globe at the bottom of the banister. (laughs) Otherwise, it will collide with his magical penis, which of course will... Bringing the entire franchise to an end because what is Bond without his magical penis after all?
0: I I love the fact that the magical penis is catching on. Lots of people now just tell me, it's like, oh, I love the magical penis. Like, well, we all do. That's the point. (laughs)
2: There's one other tiny bit I noticed, which is that bit where he's creeping around the palace and then he goes to find Octopussy. He hides behind the door and Khan comes in and doesn't see him. But the octopus-y girl who opens the door just looks right at him. <laughs> yeah. They have, they kind of have a moment. It's kind of cute. She's like, should I say something? Should I not say something? Does Camel Card know he's here? Does does he not?
0: Oh, goodness. And then at the very end, they don't really have a good punchy final line. Like, I mean, even for your eyes only had the parrot saying, give us a kiss, give us a kiss or something like that. And she she drops her robe and says, for your eyes only, darling, and they go for a skinny dip. But of course, Moonraker had attempting re-entry and Spy Who Loved Me had keeping the British end up. And then I can't even remember. And I just watched the film. I can't even remember <laughs> what his leg is like in a in a brace. Because he's that's right, yes. badly injured. But then he just kicks it off and max on with her.
2: And then at the end of the film, it does say James Bond will return in From a View to a Kill, which was the title of the short story. Mm. And they dropped the From. So this is the second time they've got the title of the next film wrong in the end credits. Because I think, as you pointed out at the end of *Spy Love Me*, it says James Bond will return in Fioris Only*, yes. and I'm pretty sure they stopped naming the next film at this point. I think at the end of *A View to a Kill*, it just says James Bond will return, yes, and, that's and that's what, what it's great. said ever since.
0: That's what they do now because it's, you're right. It's like it's just too big a risk. You don't want to <laughs> keep chopping and changing. You could get accused of being inconstant. So yes, goodness. Well, I'm, I'm bluffing for time because I am trying to work out where I'm putting this film. But, Stu, you, you, you're generally pretty sorted with these things. Do you want to go first?
1: That's well, I've, I've placed it in my list and I'm not sure if I'm happy where I've put it because it's pretty far down and it probably deserves to be there. But like you said, I had a lot of fun watching this movie. There are genuinely good action scenes. Like the scene on the plane is really good. I, I had a lot. Of, I thought it was really well done. There are funny moments. There are action packed moments. There are moments of actual comedy that work pretty well and then there are other things that are obviously really, really bad. And and like the, the <laughs> juxtaposition of those things means that I can't put it very high on the list. But like, I, I kept going down the list because that's how we do this. We sort of, you sort of have to justify each spot. Does this film belong above this one? And I got down to You Only Live Twice in 10th spot. And I was like, well, look, You Only Live Twice has all the yellow face stuff. And that's that's not great. But it also has a spaceship that eats other spaceships. And <laughs> As I've said, like, that is that is excellent. I can't in good conscience put Octopussy above that. So I think this has to go in number 11, which means it's just above The Man with the Golden Gun and then Thunderball in Dead Last.
0: So it's still not enough to go beyond Thunderball for you?
1: No, 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 no. Thunderball is a movie that is uh, eight days long. And, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, you know, I think that's points off. I mean, you know, it's too long. It's far too long for a movie. <laughs> Ridiculous, really.
0: I actually think I am very similar to you, except my issue has been, do I put this above or below for your eyes only? So I'm right down the bottom. Man with the Golden Gun yeah. is at the bottom for me. And I still feel bad about The Man with the Golden Gun being at the bottom. Well,
1: it's another one that, that's weirdly schizophrenic. There's good, there's really good stuff in The Man with the Golden Gun, but it's all, yeah. there's also some very stupid stuff.
0: Yeah, I think I'm going to have to put it just ahead of The Man with the Golden... Oh, maybe I should put it after.
1: You liked The Man with the Golden Gun more than I did.
0: I did. My issue is, is, is as I always say, trying to balance the enjoyment I have of watching the film versus the... Do I come back to it? And I don't come back to Fear Eyes Only, but I can appreciate it's a better film than The Man with the Golden Gun. And so by that logic, I probably have to put Octopussy ahead of The Man with the Golden Gun as well. But I don't know if I want to.
1: Maybe I'll put this last. Maybe I'll do it. This is going in last spot. I mean, look, it would be an uncontroversial choice if that that happened.
0: Mm -hmm. Both of them suffer with story problems, The Man with the Golden Gun and Mm -hmm. Octopussy. Octopussy is probably more egregious because... It's the really two big stories and they're kind of clamped. But then it does have Stephen Burkoff, who we probably didn't talk about enough in this, because he's great. His eyes are just, they should win Oscars (laughs) just on their own. Have you seen him live or anything, Tom? I saw him once, years ago.
2: Yeah, I saw him doing a one-man show doing stories from Edgar Allan Poe, which was remarkable. And this is, I think, just the beginning of thinking about casting bigger names, especially as the villain we get. A real star, Christopher Walken, wasted, alas, in a View to a yeah. Kill. And, and from this point on, they do start thinking about upping the ante a bit, whereas up until now, it's been sort of European theatre actors. Yes. Mm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, Michelle Lonsdale, quilts. great, but not really yeah. a marquee name. No. Uh, and so this is, I think, the, the, the cusp. Because Louis Jourdan also, you know, he was in Gigi back in the 50s. You know, he, oh, wow. he had been quite the star in his day.
0: What is his heritage anyway? Because he's playing Afghani.
2: He's French, I think.
0: Oh, right. Maybe right.
2: French and something else.
0: Uh, okay, like maybe French Algerian or
2: something. Something like that, yes.
0: So let me think while you're looking that up. Where am it's I just
2: gonna... says French.
0: French. Well, I suppose yeah. he has dark hair. Um... <laughs> yes,
2: mm. born Louis-Robert Gendre in Marseille in 1921. Educated in France, Turkey, and the UK. Have you seen Gigi?
0: No, I never have.
2: That's a that's a weird film. But he sort of plays the the rake in that.
0: Did that win a Best Picture? Have you done that one? For...
2: It did win a Best Picture, and we have yeah. looked at it. It's it's one of the more confounding ones we've seen. It really hasn't moved with the times because it's basically a story about isn't it fun to be a prostitute? Uh, uh, except they never say the word prostitute. It's very very odd.
0: Just tell us about Best Pick Pod because sure. it's just it's kicking goals and it's really. <laughs>
2: We're getting... having a lot of fun doing it. Yeah. So this is me and two friends, and we're all kind of writers and actors of one sort or another. And we are working our way through every film that's won Best Picture at the Academy Awards in an order determined by picking them out of a hat at random, hence Best <laughs> Pick. With each episode, you'll learn what happened at the Oscars that year, what was happening in film generally that year, and then how that film got made. Then we watch the film, and then we'll tell you what we thought of it, and we end by trying to answer the question, did the Academy get it right, or was there another film released that year which would have been a more worthy winner
1: i was going to say i would imagine that that often the answer is no the academy did not get it right <laughs> yes
2: but we you know we did try and take into account the way that things move with the times and try to look at other films that were out that year and try and to the greatest extent that we can judge it by the age because there are some films which seem a bit creaky now which were revolutionary when they came out do you want a um an oscar fact my current favorite oscar fact which yes is please a In 1937, an actress called Alice Brady was nominated as Best Supporting Actress for a film called In Old Chicago. You've never heard of any of these people. It's fine. Don't worry about it. (laughs) She was unable to attend the ceremony because she was at home nursing a broken ankle. But she was listening to it over the radio and was delighted to hear her name read out. Her representative walked onto the stage, accepted the statuette on her behalf, said a few graceful words of thanks and then left. To this day, nobody knows who that man was. (laughs) Ha! where he went or what has happened to alice brady's oscar wow
0: i guess back then they didn't have the whole production line of interviews and things that they have now where you get it wasn't even
2: wasn't even a public show it was a private dinner in a room in a in a big hotel it was like a fancy banquet with dancing afterwards so at some point someone wandered in and went it's alice brady i think i'll just uh thank you very much (laughs) that's incredible isn't that amazing? And it's... For, for more of the same, go to bestpickpod.com, and uh, we have got about 65 episodes up there at the moment.
0: Well, you're getting close uh, then to... We are,
2: yes. There, there have been 92 Best Picture winners so far, assuming that the Oscars for 2021 does go ahead. By the time we finish, there will have been 93.
0: And do you, what happens after that? I imagine people are saying, you've got to find, like, cause for us, after James Bond, we're going <laughs> to do Batman, apparently. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay all right we'd like to keep it going in some way i think a rest will be in order we've got lots and lots of research for all of these films so i think we'll definitely try and turn all of that research into a book oh that's a good idea fantastic how we keep the podcast going is a matter of active conversation at the moment
0: oh that's fantastic look i think i'm going to put octopussy oh gosh i'm gonna put it last
1: last place last place
0: i'm gonna do it I'm going to put it under The Man with the Golden Gun because I do like Scaramanga a real lot and I don't know that I like any of the villains in this as much as him. So that's a very – I could change my mind next week. We, Stu and I have been discussing maybe that we'll do a rejigged list after the full franchise mm-hmm. okay. and I was thinking what might be good is to allow us like a limited amount of changes, so mm. like three changes, yeah. um, you know, one up here, one down here, one down here, and that's it.
2: I tried to do in five minutes what you guys have been doing over the last 12 or 13 weeks <laughs> oh. and put the films in order so far. Uh, and I think my list is a bit different from yours. Oh,
0: yes. So you got?
2: I, I find it hard to distinguish between Goldfinger from Rush with Love and The Spy Who Loved Me. To me, they are all excellent. Right. And I'd happily watch any of them. They're all just great. But I'm probably in that order, probably Goldfinger because it's so iconic. From Rush with Love is probably the most completely successful film. And Spy Who Loved Me is probably the like the bondiest bond of them all. That's down the bottom three
0: in exactly
2: the yeah, same order. Yeah, right. <laughs> so down the bottom, I think Thunderball, Diamonds Are Forever, and The Man With The Golden Gun are all basically dreadful in different ways, uh, <laughs> but none of them really work for me. Thunderball, as Stuart says, uh, you have to you know, book out a long weekend in order to watch it all. Diamonds are very, very... Even Sean Connery looks bored by, and The Man (laughs) with the Golden Gun is just nonsense from beginning to end. So then there's quite a lot kind of jockeying the place in the middle. I think near the top of the middle, I would put Honor, Majesty, Secret Service and You Only Live Twice. Mm -hmm. I think what's interesting about You Only Live Twice is for me, that's the point where the series stops innovating. Mm. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of things that hark back to You Only Live Twice, uh, including this film. But at the time, I think it was doing something new with the Bond series. And On Magic Secret Service suffers very badly from the fact it doesn't have James Bond in it, but it's got some <laughs> model who's wandered in looking yeah. at a bit uncertain. <laughs> so that's my top five. And then thinking about it now, I think, I think I've think i realised that the more films go kind of in order for me, I think it does go Moonraker, Fiora's Only Octopussy. And so there would be six, seven and eight. And I think they do go, I think it was a, a decline. There is diminishing returns. Moonraker is wildly excessive, but war is still fairly virile and healthy and yes it's a rehash of the spy who loved me but it's still pretty good and michelle lonsdale is excellent if Your eyes mm-hmm. only is a bit drab in comparison the need to make it serious robs it of some of the fun and some of the glamour and octopussy as we've been saying is kind of a mess but I think I might be marginally prefer it to live and let die, which is terribly uncertain. And I think the same can be said of Dr. No. They just feel a bit like, oh, how, how do we do this? Is this right? Should we? Oh, I'm not sure. <laughs> so for me, it's sort of somewhere in the middle. I think it comes out eighth out of 13.
0: Wow. Okay. Now I'm feeling bad. Um,
2: right? why, maybe Why I'll have you feel to... bad? This is... Diversity is the spice of life.
0: It, it's true. I know. But it, you guys are clever. And I'm like, I just like the one with the funny stuff in it. <laughs> I've got Diamonds Are Forever and Dr. No quite high. You know, they're three and four for me because of just some memorable. Yeah, yeah. Because Diamonds Are Forever came in kind of number two when that came in at that point in the series. It's dropped to number three and will drop further. I know that, (laughs) knowing what I know about myself. (laughs) Yeah, this is what I mean by saying that maybe having like three changes. But I wouldn't want to do that now. I think I'd want to save it till the end and then.
2: (laughs) Diamonds Are Forever for for me gets off to such a poor start. That pre-title sequence is is so lackluster, and then it has such a poor ending. All mm. that nonsense on the oil rig where you can barely see what's going on. It almost <laughs> doesn't matter what happens in the middle. If you can't start and end your Bond film well, what the hell are you doing? It's got a good bit where Sean Connery steps onto the top of a moving elevator. Yes, that's really the only thing I, I think that distinguishes it for me. Diamonds Are Forever is in is in my fourth spot, and that's mostly
1: driven by nostalgia, and that I have a massive crush on Jules St. John. Yes. <laughs> That's basically (laughs) how how that gets so high for me.
0: (laughs) See, now that I think about it, like when I'm comparing the two, I probably would or prefer to watch Moonraker above Diamonds Are Forever, but that's further down. So, yeah, and because I put Dr. No above From Russia With Love, I keep having this conflict of not wanting to put anything above From Russia With Love, but possibly (laughs) I've I've kind of backed myself into a corner.
1: (laughs) The the time is coming, Natalie, when a film is going to have to slot into those spots.
0: Because of my sentimental attachment to um, Dr No. So, yeah, it's really tricky.
1: Normally normally there's a pretty good consensus about where a film, where one of these Bond films is landing on these lists. Even if we're not having it in exactly the same spot, we're definitely getting it in the same sort of area. And this time around we've got it in some pretty different areas. I mean, it's eight on Tom's list. It's 11th spot in mine and it's last place on yours. Yeah, that okay. feels appropriate for this film, It's co- which is a very scattered film.
0: Yeah. I guess I feel like I don't want to offend the films because I, I, I love... <laughs> they won't
1: I take, it
2: take it personally, Nat, I promise yeah, you.
0: Please don't take it personally, Octopussy. Like, I had so much <laughs> fun watching it. I really did. That hot air balloon. movie. <laughs> And also what I loved about that sequence is Q is flying the hot air balloon, but then James goes, hold on to this, will you? And he goes, what are you doing, James? Come back. And it's like you've literally flown in to help rescue someone and you're expecting him to stay in the basket. (laughs) He's
2: James (laughs) Bond. Don't forget the gag. Do you know how to work this thing, Q? It goes by hot air. So you can.
0: (laughs) Oh, so many guys. Do you
2: know, as much as I
1: love the hot air balloon, my hot take is that should have been a giant two-man hang glider. (laughs) (laughs) Just to to keep that thread going for Boar's Bond.
0: (laughs) He has had a lot of hang gliders,
1: (laughs) Roger Moore. But still emblazoned with the Union Jack, just, you know.
0: (laughs) But the fact that it's on a hot air balloon and it's a Union Jack, like, it's so... (laughs)
1: It's still very good.
0: It's just perfect. It's like, are we trying to be camouflage secret agents? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much, Tom. Please go and um, check out Best Pick Pod on all your podcast services. Really worth a listen. Very well researched. Very entertaining. Thank you so much, Tom, for being our first international and properly British guest. No, mind if I do? It's so good to have a British voice on, on a Bond podcast. But until we meet again, I suppose I'm Natalie. And I'm Stu. And we're shaken.
1: Not stirred.